This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Historian, philosopher, writer, mystic, 32nd degree Freemason, Robert W. Sullivan IV is here to reveal esoteric and occult symbols in cinema. And he's here for the full two hours. This is going to be good. Uh, Carlos Cagina is my technical producer and Ryan White is the live stream producer. And yes, we are live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And uh, if for any reason... Big Tech, Big Tech Gestapo uh, takes any of my YouTube videos down. You can always head over to Rumble.com, and Ryan uploads all uh, every episode there. Rumble.com, usually within a few days, and then uh, when you get to Rumble.com, search under Channels for Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Uh, before we get rolling. If uh, you've just subscribed recently to my newsletter, Inner Sanctum, in the last few days, you've probably missed my June edition. That went out a few days ago. And that was the final edition of Inner Sanctum until September. Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter, is going into summer hiatus just for a couple of months. But you can continue to to, uh, subscribe and then You'll be all set when I start publishing again in September. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on the Inner Sanctum banner to subscribe. I just need an email. It takes about five seconds. And again, delivered right to your email inbox for free, but on summer hiatus until September. Uh, another quick note, I'll be uh, hosting Coast to Coast AM next Saturday, July the 3rd. Saturday night into Sunday morning. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information and to find a list of radio stations that carry this amazing late-night talk radio program. Well, everyone's favorite Freemason is here, and he strikes again with Cinema Symbolism 3, The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. Applying his uh, expert and objective observations, Robert W. Sullivan IV analyzes a new slate of movies 
revealing Tinseltown's esoteric and dark secrets. Some of the films dissected in this new volume are The Mummy from 1932, The Witch 2015, Lolita 1962, Joker 2019, Dark City, uh, The Red Shoes, Midsum- uh, Midsommar, Eraserhead, Pan's Labyrinth, um, Chris Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, The Shape of Water, and the vast mythology of Twin Peaks, among others. Uh, from Gnosticism to Freemasonry to Black Magic and Kabbalah, no rock is uh, ever left unturned with uh, Robert's books. Robert is a historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer. And uh, the author of five books, The Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolism 1, 2, and uh, A Pact with the Devil, which was a work of fiction. And uh, his latest, as I say, is Cinema Symbolism 3, The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. Hey, Robert, welcome back to the program. How are you? Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to tonight's show. Likewise. Likewise. Now, just kind of on a personal note, you're Robert Sullivan the Fourth. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about your ancestors? Sure. Uh, I never the the uh, Robert W. Sullivan the First. I never knew, and Robert W. Sullivan the Second died when I was very young. My grandfather. Um, he was a Freemason, but um, I did not know him that long. He died when I was about nine years old, uh, maybe 10. My father is still around. He is doing well. And uh, and then, of course, me. Um, so, you know, uh, my father's my father's doing very well. Um, he's, of course, uh, in his mid-70s now. And, um, but, Were um, they all Masons? All Masons? No. Um, my, my great-grandfather and grandfather were. Robert W. Sullivan, first and second, were Freemasons. The third, my father is not. It skipped over him. I am. And then uh, some of the um, ancestors on my mother's side were Masons as well. So senior and junior were Masons. In fact, um, I believe senior may have been a grandmaster. One of them on my mother's side was was a uh, past master. Excuse me. He ran the lodge. Um, Senior, Robert W. Sullivan, Sr. and Jr. were Masons. My father is not one. All right. Now, in your vast resume, you're also listed as, a, as an antiquarian. What is an antiquarian? It's essentially a fancy word. Um, it's another way of saying historian, essentially. Um, it's, just a, it's just a more fancier word. I've always kind of liked it. It's a word that you see uh, thrown around with people like Elias Ashmole, uh, the Freemason and Rosicrucian enthusiast. So I just kind of appropriated the word. But in, in, in truth, it's probably just a fancy. It's just a fancier way of saying historian. All right. So uh, you, you and I have talked about uh, uh, this subject matter a number of times on Coast sure. to Coast and on my podcast. Uh, but so I'm going to, you know, go over some things that we've covered before. First of all, how many times do you watch a movie before you've sort of totally unpacked it in terms of the, the esoteric and occult symbology until you've, you've you basically found it all? Yeah, it's a great question. The truth of the matter is it's probably it's probably never ending. Um, I've watched, I mean, I, I, I remember mentioning this to you, you know, I, there are some movies even to this day that I, I still put on. Um, and it's always with a little trepidation that I'm going to see something new and it's always the case. Um, 
you know, you, you think you've pinned down everything. Um, and then sure enough, something new comes up that you missed or, you know, you didn't quite pick up on, um, uh, something like that. Like, for example, I mean, I'll give you an example of this. Um, one of the movies that I dissected in the new book was the Halloween 2018 movie. And the trailer for the new one, Halloween Kills, just dropped the other day. And because I really was impressed with the trailer and I really look forward to seeing it. I'm a huge fan of the Halloween movies. And uh, because of that, I went back and um, I... I uh, I watched the first one. I have the uh, 2018 movie here on uh, Blu-ray. I have some of the other Halloweens as well, but I watched the 18 movie. And this was, again, a movie that I broke down in the uh, latest book. There's a lo- loads of, like, deja vu, into, you know, overlap. You get you get the, the feeling that the filmmakers were familiar with the Mandela effect and were trying to incorporate a lot of the past movies into this new one with overlapping scenes, such as so, so, so on and so forth. And um, when I was watching it, um, there's a scene at the very beginning of it where Michael um, is in the asylum and these two reporters come in to talk to him. And this um, this one inmate screams out Figaro twice. Uh, he's Figaro. a mental patient. Yeah, hmm. and he, he screams out twice. And I was always perplexed by that. Um, and even even when I was doing the book, I couldn't quite figure it out. I thought maybe it had something to do with music. Of course, everyone knows the Barber of Seville, uh, the Mozart opera. Right. And um, I, I couldn't quite pin this down. And the other day when I was watching it, uh, I, I just started Googling and I tried to figure out, you know, what, what I mean, this must have some sort of meaning. And sure enough, um, it's a slang word. Um, it, it's, it's very, very rarely used, but it is a slang word meaning interloper or an interferer. And what it is referring to is the guy, the reporter holding up the mask uh, of Michael Myers. He's sort of, you know, interfering um, and he's, you know, provoking this, this, uh, this uh, guy to uh, go on this kill crazy uh, rampage again. So that that's what it means. It's uh, it's it's basically a reference to the reporter holding up the mask that he's uh, you know agitating Michael again to uh, go 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 out, break out and kill. Um. So again, you know, I, you know, I always used, usually have to watch them at least four or five times. I have to watch them on Blu-ray um, to be able to to really pin them down because uh, you know you need to pause it, fast forward, go back forward to pick up on things. Usually four or five maybe six times usually does it three two depending on how complex or detailed the movie is or how sophisticated the filmmaker is sometimes maybe just once or twice um again it just depends on the sophistication of the filmmaker but there is that slate of movies that that there's there's one or two movies out there that seems like every time i watch it i pick up on something new and why do directors or screenwriters or producers insert these i call them easter eggs little things that you sure that you uncover why do they put them in there in the first place yeah i use the term easter egg also in the book um the 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 motivations are many um i guess ultimately what it boils down to um in my opinion is it's it's a form of enhancing the movie and it really casts the movie into the mythological atmosphere um it goes for more than just being celluloid and pictures on celluloid where it becomes this transcendent uh, piece of artwork uh really um you know informing and shaping pop culture um that's what these you know easter eggs these symbols these themes these undercurrents um because it's a, it's it's a whole slate it, it's it's a whole you know symphony of things that these filmmakers use it's not just symbols it's 
people, it's colors, it's music, it's, it's, it's themes, undercurrents, th these things, you know, when, when you get these into the hands of a very knowledgeable filmmaker, or producer, or writer, um, it really, in my opinion, enhances the movie. Um, and I, I've always felt that when you, when you, when you come across these movies, not all of them have it, of course, but when you have a, a an adroit filmmaker or, or producer or filmmaking crew, um, it really can transform the, 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 um, film into a piece of artwork and uh, just really make it transcendent that that's but, what but I most people robert most people are not as well read as as you are i right. certainly am not um and so in order for that uh those layers the 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 symbols the symbology the colors the themes the music uh it it it, it the, the receiver the viewer has to understand or does it affect us I mean, much of this would probably just wash right over me, and I wouldn't know notice some of these esoteric symbols. Or does it matter? Does it work on a subconscious level? Does, does it does it awaken? I don't know certain archetypes that I might not even be aware of. Absolutely, um, it definitely works. It works on both levels. It works on a subconscious level because, as you said, most people aren't aware of it. Um, it becomes very interesting when you do become aware of it, and then you could start looking for it and seeing it for yourself. That was one of the motivations in writing these books. But no, it, it definitely um, it definitely plays on the subconscious level when you're dealing with things like the archetypes. Um, I mean, you know, these are you read the Hermetic philosophers. This is part of you know the archetypes are part of the world soul. Uh, you know, connecting you with the divine. The meditation on them brings you closer to the Godhead, and uh, you know it can it, it can be used to enlighten some people say it can be used to manipulate i've never really found it to be that way um but you know many people believe that the you know the meditation on the archetypes is brings you closer to the godhead you find this in the works of people like carl jung emmanuel schwettenborg um so it's 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 really um you know i, I was on a show um, well, it's one of the shows you host. It was Coast to Coast AM, and I had I was on with um, George Norrie. This was one of the first times I was on, and during the question and answer session, we had a I had a, a screenwriter call in to the show, and um, he actually said he said when I write when I write scripts or when I'm doing this, he said I concentrate on the archetypes. You know, the son, the hero, the father, the villain, the shadow, the mother, the child, the lovers. This you know the tarot. This is something that I'm constantly working with to you know embed into the subconscious mind and to draw out from the subconscious mind so um you know these 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 filmmakers and writers use it too i mean you'll find um these characters these archetypes pervading the works of william shakespeare um you'll find it in the works of nathaniel hawthorne the 19th century american writers poe uh um herman melville so um, it's, 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 it's when, when you're crafting this stuff, that's something I use, um, when I, when I write books, um, it's something that, you know, uh, artists are aware of and they use it in their art to, um, you know, in, encapsulate, you know, not, not encapsulate to help, um, put forth their artwork and to make it, um, receivable to the person viewing it or reading it or watching it. Now to some Robert, um, you know, Hollywood has this dark underbelly uh and, oh, sure. and people believe that within hollywood there's all sorts of horrible unspeakable things happening and there is mind control and there is uh you know what i'm referring to right, sure of course do do you think that that some directors writers producers 
are trying to use occultic symbols, esoteric symbols, for dark purposes. And I don't even, I don't know how that would work. Um, I mean, people talk about, you know, celebrities flashing Illuminati symbols and so forth. Sure. Um, are they are they using films in this way? Is that possible? It's, it's of course, possible. Um, it's certainly, definitely possible. I mean, there is always, um, you know, when you're dealing with this stuff, there's always a light and a dark side to it. Um, sort of, you know, a Manichaean uh, take on it, light and dark. Um, they're interdependent, of course. Um, and sure, certain people... Um, you know, you, you could always craft an argument that this is being used for some sort of darker purpose. Um, I've of all the movies I've watched, and there's many of them. Um, I know that I ever feel like I was being mind controlled. I think some of this material is being used for sensationalist purposes, uh, shock value, as it were. Um, I think that's certainly uh, a an explanation for some of it. Um, certainly in my opinion, where you get into the darker undercurrents of this stuff is where, you know, we've talked about this before is where these movies seem to be prophetic. Um, you know, they seem to be prophesizing different events, um, right? Predictive you know, programming, predictive yeah. programming. I mean, how, how is this happening? That's kind of the million dollar question because I do find it hard to believe that Hollywood directors are using crystal balls to gaze into the future and then putting things into their movies. That to me strikes me as as far fetched and doesn't really kind of add up as a lawyer. I don't see any real reason for that. But nevertheless, I mean, we clearly have this happening. Um, I mean, you could you can document it, you know, all over the place. I mean, whether right. it's we will the, get we'll get into that. Sure, we'll get okay. into that. Um, we'll talk about predictive programming. And you do have an, a very uh, an interesting theory as to what's actually happening there. Sure. Uh, I mean, so, you know, so you but I mean, even in Hollywood, I mean, you, you do have um, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, Hollywood does make some very dark movies also. Um, not all of them, of course. I mean, they've made plenty of enlightening movies and uplifting movies, but they do they do make dark dark theme movies as well. So yeah, I mean, there is there is always, um, you know, you know. Uh, I mean, it's like everything else in, in in this world. It's always multifaceted. It's complex. Um, nothing is ever one hundred percent good or evil. Uh, it's always a you know, shades of gray, some darker than the others. This is the way, at least in right. my experience, um, the world works. Well, yeah, and we will come back to predictive programming, but I was just sure. going to say that, you know, one of the theories is that that somehow at a certain level in Hollywood, uh, because they control the culture, they have some sort of a pipeline into, I don't know, the national security state or the highest levels of of uh, uh, the deep state, if you will, and, and they are given information before some cataclysmic event beforehand in order to do what maybe normalize it in people's minds or to prepare them uh, or in some twisted way like an artist but he can't sign his name to this heinous act and so he or maybe there's there's some unwritten code that that they have to let people know what they're doing. You've heard all of these theories. Sure, sure. I mean, I, Hollywood has worked with the government before. This is nothing new. Um, I mean, I don't know if, you know, if, if they'd be received, for starters, I mean, it presumes a lot. It presumes also that the government is orchestrating these events. Um, and of course, that's speculation. Um, but certainly, um, I know for a fact that the X-Files, when that aired, uh, many of the scripts were reviewed by the FBI for accuracy. Um, 
I can, t- I mean, you know, you get into the war, World War Two. I mean, you have movies, Yankee Doodle Dandy was war propaganda. Um, the early Sherlock Holmes, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce movies uh, put out by Universal. The first couple were war propaganda, um, you know, for the Allied nations. Uh, this is, I mean, no question inten- intentional. Uh, so, you know, the the government's involvement with Hollywood. Um, you know, is documented. I mean, my God, Walt Disney was a spy for J. Edgar Hoover. Um, so, you know, um, it's, it's not unheard of for Hollywood to be working with, um, you know, the government, the, um, the idea though, that the government is crafting these events and then sending the Hollywood, I don't know. I'd have to see a little more evidence of that. Um, you know, and like I said, it, it presumes, it presumes that the government is in fact doing that. Um, but you know, it's certainly, um, Something is going on that's irrefutable because there's been too many instances in cinema where something is shown uh, and then it happens uh, in, in reality. So, you know, like I said, clearly there is something to this. What it is, I don't think anyone can certainly pin down 100 um, percent. Of course, I have an expert. I, I put forth sort of more of a rational explanation for it, but it is creepy um, and it is uncanny to say the least. And it's something that we could we could go on and talk about all night. And uh, well, sure. we won't talk about it all night, but we will dedicate some time uh, for it. Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth, Cinema Symbolism Three, and uh, we'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll we'll. Uh, We'll give some examples. We'll talk about the different types of occult symbolism, whether we're talking about Gnosticism and our Hermeticism, uh, Kabbalah, even Christian symbology will work its way into uh, Hollywood cinema. Back with more of our conversation, we'll also open up the phone lines in the second hour. So keep your powder dry until the second hour. Just sit back, enjoy the conversation, and then we'll make the phone lines available to you for questions and comments a little bit later. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Robert W. Sullivan IV, historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, uh, the author of five books, including his latest, Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. So just so people understand what, what we're on about here, when we talk about different types of occult symbolism, let's start with uh, one example, Gnosticism. Just explain uh, what Gnosticism uh, is in a very briefly, and then give us some examples of Gnostic symbology, some films where we would find Gnostic symbology. Did we lose Robert? No, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, I'm there we are. Sorry, no worries. Uh, what was the uh, question again? I'm oh, sorry. Okay, so um, just so people understand the different types of symbology. So there's, there's Gnosticism, Hermeticism, sure. Enochian symbology, Kabbalah. Let's talk with, let's start with Gnosticism. So yeah, give us this an, is, this- yeah, explain ahead, what it explain what Gnosticism is, and then give us some examples of a film where we'd find Gnostic symbology. Sure, um, Gnosticism is a Christian heresy that goes back to about the second century, and it overlaps with Christianity, um, but it, it has a different take on it. Um, it. It has to do with it's it's a theology a doctrine that has to do with um, awakening one's uh, sort of inner self coming to consciousness, to, to, to know thyself, as it were, which is also the maxim of Hermeticism, is to know thyself. Um, it, it has three fountainheads of um, thought 
three philosophers or, or you know theologians, I guess some would call them heretics, um, that that expound Gnostic philosophy. Um, and there are Manny, Valentinus, and Basilidus. Those are the three fountainheads of Gnosticism. Manny is the easiest one. He is um, he is uh, light and dark. It's sort of Zoroastrianism. The universe is composed of light and dark um, entities, agencies going against each other. This is good versus evil. This is light and dark. This is ignorance and knowledge. Um, th- this is... In, in cinema, this would be the least interesting movie because um, it's the easiest to spot. So this would be Star Wars with Jedi versus Sith or Harry Potter with Harry Potter versus the Death Eaters. The next one is is uh, I'll skip over Valentinus because he's I'll, I'll go to him last because he's the most interesting. The next one is Basilidus. Um, and he he kind of I, well, I guess you probably have to talk about Valentinus first. He, he basically says that. The, the way to get to the Godhead, that the way to um, get to the spiritual Godhead is through ignorance, is through willed um, oblivion, essentially. Um, and I, I guess at this point I should expand, explain some, what some of the Gnostic doctrines are. Essentially, it holds that there is this spiritual hidden God out there, what is known as the monad, um, and it has emanations and one of them is this uh, divine feminine, uh, Aeon is what they're called, called Sophia. And she tries to study and understand the monad, which is a no-no. You can't do that. Essentially, she is cast out of this place called the Pleroma, which would, I guess, would equate to Christianity's heaven. Um, and she's cast down in the matter, into what's known as the Kenoma. And as she is being cast down, she births this deity known as the Demiurge, um, which is a Greek word meaning utility man. And this God fashions our universe. It's, it's an error. It's created in mistake. And our reality is the product of this lesser God known as the Demiurge. And he rules the universe. But of course, as anyone familiar with this will tell you, he does not rule it alone. He has this coterie of angels and demons known as archons, uh, who help him rule the universe, but they of course rule it imperfectly. And one of the um, one of the purposes of the archons is to keep humankind asleep, is to keep them unconscious, is to keep them in stasis, keep them uh, ignorant. Um, and what these not three Gnostic philosophers were trying to do was to um, come up with a cosmology and a system where humankind could awaken out of the slumber and obtain the spiritual divinity and return back to this monad, this Godhead. Um, and what Basiliti said was the way to do this is through willed ignorance is to be completely stupid, um, and to live in oblivion. It's a form of Zen Buddhism essentially is, mm. you know, you meditate, you sit in a corner, you don't do anything, opening your eyes, you're participating in the Demiurge's reality, speaking you're participating in the demiurge's reality you to essentially do nothing um the movie that reflects this is the movie by david cronenberg called existence where the characters by the end of the movie this is jude law and jennifer jason lee are just so completely stupid and out of it they don't know what reality they're even living in anymore 
Um, the main one, and this is the movie that everyone likes, is the Valentinius th- th- thread. Um, and he is the guy who is, is is putting forth what I just said, that there is this demiurgic creator of the universe that is inherently flawed um, and that humankind needs to escape it and you have to escape the archons. And what he, he runs c- contradictory to Basilides. He said the way that humankind can awaken their consciousness and return back to the monad is through wisdom. Um, the more the more knowledge the human being requires, the more consciousness he has. This is frowned upon by the demiurge and the archons because he wants they want to keep humankind asleep, and this allows the soul to transcend um, after death and return to the monad. And of course, this is reflected in Christianity. This is reflected in Gnosticism and Hermeticism and in Kabbalah. Um, this is what are called like these celestial spheres. Um, in Kabbalah, they're known as the Sephirot. In Hermeticism, they're known as the Seven Governors. And in Christianity, they're known as the Celestial Hierarchies. And they overlap. And what they essentially say is that when the soul dies and it has transcending to heaven, it passes through these Kabbalistic spheres. This would be the Sephirot. Um, in Hermeticism, it's the Seven Governors. In in Christianity, uh, they're known as the celestial hierarchies. This comes from the works of a character called Pseudo Dionysius, the celestial hierarchies. This was accepted by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and what these celestial hierarchies are, are levels of spiritual purification that the smarter the person was on earth, um, the easier it will be for the spirit to pass through these celestial hierarchies and return to the Godhead. The problem is, and this is in Kabbalah and in Hermeticism and even in Christianity, is again, these hierarchies are guarded by these archons, and you have to navigate your way um, through past these archons in order to return to the Godhead. All right. so, so if we look at a movie like The Matrix... This would be your Valentinius thread. All right, um, so so everyone, unbeknownst to them, is actually you know asleep. Correct. And they're, they're hooked up to this machine, and they're being right. ba- basically utilized for their energy right their life force absolutely correct this would be the matrix dark city would be your prime examples of the valentinian gnostic thread um the truman show you could throw this in also where you have the architect we'll go we'll stick with the we'll stick with the matrix so you would have the architect the creator of the false reality um he turns up in part two this would be your demiurge this would be your demiurgic artificer uh, the fashioner of the false reality, um, the material realm. Um, you would have um, the people who are trying to obtain consciousness. This would be your Valentini, the the, the person who would be in, Val- in Valentinius's um, cosmology. The Jesus Christ figure um, is the person sent down from the monad, um, trying to awaken everybody. And of course, this is a he's heralded by this pagan god known as Hermes Trismegistus. So in the Matrix movie, you'd have Morpheus would be the Hermes Trismegistus analog. He's the one prophesizing the one. Um, and of course, this would be Neo. This would be the Gnostic Christ um, who's coming down to awaken everybody to this false reality. So Morpheus to- is like John the Baptist in the Christian. He's the forerunner. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he is in, in comparative religion. Um, John the Baptist is Hermes. So the the Morpheus character is the Hermes Trismegistus, wisdom bringer, enlightener, prophesizer of Jesus Christ. If you read the Hermetica, um, these dialogues by Hermes Trismegistus, allegedly written by him, he prophesizes the coming of the Son of God. Um, so the Morpheus character would be the... Um, you know the, the 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 prophesizer, the herald of the coming of the one. Neo would be the Gnostic Christ, um, who's coming down to awaken everybody to the false reality. Um, you have the demiurge would be the architect. You have um, the archons would of course be the agents. This is the guardians of the false reality who are trying to keep everybody asleep, keep everybody in stasis. Um, and then you would have, uh, you know, the character of Trinity would be the Sophia, the divine feminine character who is, you know, the Sajiji was young, the unification with the masculine um, to obtain this higher Godhead to help awaken everybody up. And, and you'll see this in the movie. I mean, the, right. the, the, Neo, when he's introduced, um, is, uh, you know, referred to as Jesus Christ. You have the whole idea, the, the Lewis Carroll reference to Alice in Wonderland. Um, again, the, the Alice in Wonderland story is, is, is a story of Gnostic epiphany where Alice goes underground to have her great awakening. Um, and again, this would be reflected in Wizard of Oz, um, where Dorothy goes on this you know, journey to the magical realm to have her great awakening, which for her is there's no place like home. Um, for, for little Alice, it's the world of adults is no good. Um, it's just basically make-believe. Does, does so, this mean necessarily that all of these directors or screenwriters in each of these cases were, were, were Gnostics? They, they, they were ad- adherents to Gnosticism? Absolutely. I think you could definitely say that. I mean, I, I mean, you, you clearly have, um, you know, the, 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 the strong Gnostic thread, um, in the matrix. Um, I do not believe it is mistaken or unintentional. I believe it isn't, isn't, it, it is intentional. Um, and like, uh, you know, what, what makes this even more curious is from the years right at the turn of the millennium, um, and you could probably craft an argument that maybe syncs with the age of Pisces going to Aquarius. You had this slate of Gnostic movies released. I mean, it's all right in that time frame from about 97 to 01, um, where you had this, this, you know, Hollywood just pushing out one Gnostic movie after another, whether it be The Matrix. You know, it's all the ones we know and love. I mean, it's The Matrix, The Truman Show. Dark City, Existence, Donnie Darko, Vanilla Sky, 13th Floor, um, you know, Minority Report to an extent. Um, You had Hollywood just pushing this incredible slate of Gnostic films all in this narrow time frame. Hmm. Robert, I got to uh, take I a believe, I got to take yeah. a time out. We'll sure. um, we'll pick this up on the other side. Yeah, Robert W. No Sullivan the Third, Cinema Symbolism Three, and uh, we'll get to uh, more of this conversation in about two minutes. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Cinema Symbolism 3, The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled with uh, writer, mystic, philosopher, antiquarian, 
Robert W. Sullivan the third, or the fourth, sorry, Robert W. Sullivan the fourth. Um, alchemical symbolism. What is alchemical symbolism? Right. So an alchemical movie is generally one where it doesn't involve turning lead into gold. Um, although you do have the movie Goldfinger, uh, which is just that. Um, it is that's probably one of the godfathers of the alchemical films where he's not turning gold into lead into gold, but he's he's messing around with gold, making trying to make it uh, his stock more valuable. And the uh, right, he wants to make it radioactive, right? He wants to make gold radioactive so that his gold will will skyrocket in value. Correct. So in that form, he is an alchemist. I mean, he's got his little philosopher stone there with the radiation device, the the dirty nuclear weapon. Uh, But generally, what what I define an alchemical movie is, um, it usually involves the protagonist transitioning from one thing to another, um, from, uh, from one and from one sense of self into something completely different. Um, this usually, you know, there's something at the beginning of the movie. Um, and by the end of the movie, there's something completely different. Um, and it's usually a profound change and it's usually very negative. Um, sometimes it's positive. Um, it's a little different than the Gnostic epiphany movie where like at the end of the wizard of Oz, Dorothy's still the same character, but she's just wiser. So that's really more of a, a Gnostic film. The alchemical movie is something like black Swan or the shining where, the Jack Torrance character starts out as kind of this failed writer or maybe struggling writer is the better descriptor descriptor. And by the end of the movie, he's a full blown psychopath. Um, same thing with black Swan where she's sort of this frustrated ballerina at the beginning of it. Um, and by the end of it, she is this sort of psychotic bird creature as it were. Um, so those are in, in, in my estimation, al- alchemical movies. Um, they all generally, I'm sorry, we, did you did you jump in there? No. no. Uh, um, but they they generally follow. If if you have the eye to see this, um, they follow um, a certain color scheme that the that the the, the, the good alchemical films um, always seem to f- follow, um, and that is in in Renaissance alchemy there was these four um, phases of alchemy. Uh, that that are, are reflected, and they're also psychological. Um, Carl Jung equated them to psychology, um, and it's very potent. And the, the, these filmmakers are very are very aware of it because a lot of the archetypes um, revolve around this. Not all of them. Uh, the villain usually always revolves around this. Um, and if you become familiar with these color schemes, um, these Renaissance alchemical color schemes, the the move the alchemical movies really stand out. Um, because 99% of the time, these colors are always represented in some form or fashion. Give me an example um, of that. Oh, these uh, color twin, twin, sure. Twin Peaks is, is one of the, the best examples of this of, of them all. Um, the colors are, uh, are um, black, white, red, and yellow. Um, and, and those are not the order they go in. Um, the first phase is the black, uh, followed by the white, then the yellow. Um, and some leave out the yellow. Um, that's sometimes left out. And then the red is the finality of it. Um, Twin Peaks is, is a great ex- example of this, um, where um, the, the TV show, the, the, the original TV show in 1991 um, was very alchemical, where it was it was it was the whole idea was the Black Lodge and the and the White Lodge. Those are two of your colors. Um, you have to integrate your soul to become whole. Um, and this is what's, you know, it's it's the negredo, which is the black, the albedo, which is the white. Um, and the finality is the rubido. Um, that's the red. 
Um, and if, if if you pay attention to this, uh, the, the you know, I mean, it's right off the bat, the Audrey Horn character played by Cheryl Finn um, wears the black and white shoes and she takes them off and puts on the red high heels. Um, and this is the whole function. This is for telling the whole thing is the whole purpose of the black and white lodges is to, is for the soul to undergo this alchemical transition, um, the positive with the negative in the black. This is explained by the Hawk character, the the um, the Indian police chief. Um, or sheriff, or sheriff, as it were. This is the whole function of the white and black lodges: is to um, integrate the soul, um, the positive with the negative. White and black lodges, the albedo with the negredo, um, to produce the finality of the rubido, the red. Um, and this is one of the reasons why red saturates uh, black uh, uh, Twin Peaks. Interesting, but again, uh, that would wash right over me. I would, I would not know the significance of those colors. But you're saying that these are somehow subtly affecting my subconscious. Correct. Um, this is this is Gnostic thought. A lot of the Renaissance alch- alchemists took their um, took their cues from the Gnostics. Um, and again, when you're dealing with th- this is psychology. This is what Jung said um, is straight psychology. You know, the the in, in cinema, the 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 Negredo phase. Um, this all is ultimately the the villain. Um, this is what he would call the shadow self. This is Darth Vader. Um, this is an archetype. Um, the you know unification. This you know the 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 albedo. Um, the one phase is the moon, the whitening. This is the feminine. Um, the yellow is the sun. This is the masculine. The rubido is the finality. This is the unification of the. Um, Sun and Moon. These are our archetypes: Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, um, James Bond, the James, uh, the Bond, the Bond girl. Um, these are all archetypes lurking in your subconscious mind that you're not even aware of, and these uh, filmmakers are t- tweaking them, twisting them, tinkering with them to make you watch their show. Oh, this is really interesting. Why is she putting on red? Sh- you know, taking off her right. black. Okay, and white Robert, shoes. I got to jump in. This was a, sure. a short segment. We'll uh, come back and oh, yeah, uh, discuss further. Robert no W. Sullivan IV, and uh, the book is Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. And we'll do some more unveiling right after this. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. So Robert, one of your, I guess, I don't know if he's your, one of your favorite directors, but you certainly uh, are very interested in what's happening uh, in the movie Midsommar. Ari Aster, talk to me about the the symbology in in uh, Midsommar. First, maybe explain a little bit about what this horror film is all about. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm very impressed with both his movies, uh, Hereditary and Midsommar. Um, I, Hereditary came out first. I saw Midsommar first, um, and I was so impressed with it. I went back and watched Hereditary. I'd, I'd never seen Hereditary, so I watched them backwards. But um, oh, it's 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 this is one of those movies where. 
you know, you watch it and it just really stands out. I mean, it's just, it's striking. Um, you know, I mean, this is a, a director who clearly knows what he is doing. He clearly knows what he, he, he is going for. Um, and the, the reason why I like that movie so much is it, it, it reminds me of The Wizard of Oz, partially because it is The Wizard of Oz. Um, but it's multi-layered. Anytime a movie is multi-layered, that always impresses me. And what I mean by multi-layered is it has different levels of undercurrent. Like The Wizard of Oz, for example. I'm not going to stay on this point. Um, but like it has the political allegory and then has the Gnostic allegory. Uh, Midsommar is the same thing. I mean, you have... Um, so, so much going on. I mean, you have it borrowing from other movies. I mean, if you ever seen The Wicker Man with Christopher Lee, um, the, you know, it, it strikes you immediately um, that this was part of what he was drawing from. Um, he he invests the movie with the number nine all, all over the place. Um, and I can't get into it all, but it has to do with Norse mythology. Um, the, the movie takes place in um, uh, in Sweden. And uh, so there's lots of Norse mythology and the number nine is critical in Norse mythology. What makes that so interesting is the movie is very dark. It's very evil. Um, I, I said I may have been on your show. I can't remember. I said it's one of those movies that reminds me of like The Exorcist um, and The Black Cat with Lugosi and Karloff, where it's like you almost feel like the devil is in the celluloid. And that's kind of what I felt when I was watching Midsommar. Midsommar. It's very evil. I mean, it's a very dark, dark movie. Um just like those other two. And um, you have, you have this whole idea of it being a re retelling of the wizard of Oz, where you have this young woman going on this mystical journey, very dark with these three uh, companions who are all representative of the three companions of um, from, from the wizard of Oz. I mean, you have the, the boyfriend um, uh, Christian, who is the cowardly lion. You have uh, Josh, who is the scholar, but he's heartless. He doesn't have a heart, so he'd be the tin man. And then, of course, you have the fool who lives only for pleasure, which would be Mark. Um, and she she has this very dark epiphany at the very end where um, she's integrated into this death cult, essentially. Um, and what makes it so interesting is just the solar symbolism. I mean, you have a lot of reference. There's a reference in it to a couple of the Kubrick movies, uh, The Shining. If you if you watch the movie, um, pay attention to when Danny. Um, this is a, a Florence Pugh. This is the protagonist um, when she's sleeping in the bunkhouse. Um, the the bed. Um, or excuse me, the blanket um, that she's using is uh, reminiscent, has the same pattern as the carpet from the Overlook Hotel. Um, I thought that was very clever. And again, that's to convey a sense of isolation that they're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and what makes the movie so very, very complex is, um, and again, this is reviewed on multiple, multiple viewings. Um, I mean, I, th I think in my book, it takes up like 75 pages, I believe, um, just Midsommar alone, um, is is the runes, is you have the use of the elder and younger Futhark um, runes in the movie, and they have meaning. Uh, believe you me, um, you cannot do an, 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 an analysis of Midsommar without mentioning the runes, uh, because they turn up, and when they turn up, they are intentional. Um and again, one of the things I thought that was very interesting, I, I skipped over this, was this use of the number nine. Um, if you go back and watch Hereditary, which was his first movie, um, this is a movie about demonic possession, um, and it focuses on a specific demon um, named Paimon. 
Um, and if you've seen Hereditary, of course, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What makes it so interesting is, um, and I, I wonder if Aster did this on purpose, is if you pull out your copy of Ars Goetia from the bookshelf, uh, The Lesser Key of Solomon, um, and you open to... Oh, I've got that right handy right here, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Your, reading, uh, your reading list is incredible. I mean... Yeah. Well, well, if you the open breadth if of you, your knowledge is un- if you, unimaginable. If you open the book to Paimon, you'll notice he is the ninth demon um, in Ars Goetia. And again, not the number nine um, pervades uh, Midsommar. And uh, if, if you watch Hereditary, you'll know that that movie focuses on Paimon. So I couldn't help but think, oh, maybe he's trying to conjure this demon again by investing, uh, by, by putting Paimon in, uh, subconsciously into um, Midsommar. But it's a very wait, wait, dark movie. Wait a second. You think that Ari Aster is actually, because you mentioned, you know, with the, with that film, as with a couple of other examples, that the the devil is in the celluloid. Do you think Ari Aster is a Satanist? Is he trying to summon a demon? I don't think he's a Satanist. I think he's just making his. I think he's making very dark films, um, and I don't think he has a. And I, th- I think he likes the world. I mean, I don't think. I mean, I, I want to go so far. I don't think Ari Aster is a Satanist no more than William Friedkin or William Peter Blatty were with The Exorcist. I think he's a very dark filmmaker, um, and he's using demonism in his films. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to call him a Satanist. Do you think he believes in the power of these symbols? I think he believes in the power of darkness, um, because he has two very profound movies about them, um, and both movies are incredibly dark. Um, and like I, I call him in the book, I, I I define him. I think he's this generation's, based on what I've seen so far, uh, version of Roman Polanski. You know, just this very incredibly dark filmmaker. Um, and what I mean that one, what I mean by that is, I'm talking about Polanski, the filmmaker, not his extracurriculars. Right, right. I mean, you have, you have. I mean, you know, you just look at Polanski, whether it be Rosemary's Baby, I mean, or you know, The Ninth Gate, or certainly Repulsion. I mean, we're just dealing with some very, very dark themes and very dark cinema. And Astor is walking that same path. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I find it difficult to watch those movies. I just, I don't. I mean, I, I can understand the artistry involved and so forth and the storytelling, but I just I can't allow that into my to seep into my house. I can't. I don't yeah. know what I don't understand the 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 the, the purpose of a film like that. It's I, so dark and so bleak, and I always feel uh, I feel the same way about uh, sort of these zombie apocalypse movies. I feel at the end just complete hopelessness. Yeah, I know. I know people to this day who can't sit through The Exorcist. I mean, so you know what you're saying is, um, you know, you know, uh, you know, resonates with me. I, I don't have a problem with them per se. I uh, horror is some of is. I guess I'm probably a bit of a horror buff. It's probably one of my favorite genres. Uh, but no, they they are very bleak. Um, you know, those movies. You know. Um, you know, they do have that dystopian ending, which a lot of people are very uncomfortable with. You know, you know, you get into sort of I was on another show talking about this where you get into, um, you know, kind of what I've called like the satanic trio of these of, of movies. You know, I, I define it as the exorcist, the omen and Rosemary's baby. They all came out in that about, you know, eight year time frame from about 68 to 76. Um, and those three movies are impenetrable. Um, you just have those as sort of the satanic trio as it were. And excuse me, the reason why I believe that is the case is they have that dystopian ending, um, that you're talking about. They're so bleak and so dark where evil wins. 
um, you know, evil triumphs over good. Um, you take a movie, for example, that came out in 68 also called The Devil Rides Out, um, which was based on a novel with by Dennis Wheatley. This came out the same year as um, Rosemary's Baby. And it stars Christopher Lee. He plays the good guy in that one. Um, but that, that movie is never, ever, th- I mean, it involves a cult of Satanists. Um, you know, the Makata character played by Charles Gray is a Crowley analog. But that movie is never, ever, ever mentioned in the same way as those other three. Um, yet it came out in 68. Um, I mean, and it has the scene in it where the Crowley character, Makata, conjures Baphomet to go to Mendes. Yet that movie is never, ever put into the same category as those other three. And the reason is, if you watch The Devil Rides Out, um, good triumph over, triumphs over evil is the end. Uh, e- triumphs over evil at the end. Um, good clearly emerges victorious. Um, Mokada and his cult, the devil worshiper, worshippers, are thoroughly defeated. This clearly isn't the case um, in Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, and The Exorcist, where evil is exalted and evil triumphs over good. So yeah, I mean they're very dystopian. Even even in a movie, another movie that kind of reminds me of that is the one with Vincent Price. Um, it's not satanic or anything is the witch finder general, um, that was released in the United States as the conqueror worm. I don't know why, but that movie has that dystopian ending where you watch it and you're like, Oh God, is that really the ending of it? You know, where it's like insanity. Uh, it's a good movie, probably one of Price's best performances. I absolutely love the movie, but again, has that very dystopian ending, which is very disturbing. Um, and it, it can be, it's people walk out of the theater and it's like, God, did I just, you know, really spend right, you know right. two hours of my life wa- watching. Yeah, I want to leave so a bleak. I yeah. want to leave a film or a theater feeling uplifted. Um, yeah, however, sure. uh, to each his own. Robert, uh, stay with us. We'll uh, head on into hour two, and we will talk about uh, things like um, occult casting sure. and uh, sort of a, a mnemonic devices that are used in in uh, with the, with the occult symbology, and also. Of course, we will get around to uh, p- predictive programming. Sure. Robert W. Sullivan IV, the book is Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. Back with more in a minute. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Robert W. Sullivan IV stays with us as we continue to delve into esoteric and occult symbolism in cinema. Again, Robert is an historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio TV personality, uh, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer, the author of five books, including The Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolism 1, Cinema Symbolism 2, uh, A Pact with the Devil, which is a work of fiction, and his latest is Cinema Symbolism 3, The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about uh, life imitating art and nine uh, eleven, um, which kind of this motif um, in, in a number of films for maybe a, like a five year period, six year period leading up to nine eleven. This nine eleven motif, we see it um, is running throughout these these movies. What's going on there? Let's talk about. Um, 
there's a, a comedy I remember with uh, Dan Aykroyd and I think it was Bill Murray and Bob Hope had a cameo, a cameo in it. It was called Spies Like Us. There's a 9-11 motif there. Well, right, right. What, 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 what I said, what I said in the book was, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's two things that are a little separate. There's the, the symbolism in film, um, leading up to it, which is, you know, the, the 9-11 little, you know, clues in these Gnostic films right up before the event. What I, what I hypo, what I put in the book was, um, of course, with 9-11, if you're going to presume, um, and again, I underline the word presume that this was a government conspiracy or this was an inside job, I guess is the better word to use. Um, one of the things that, of course, is always pointed out was that the buildings were brought down in a controlled demolition. Um, and this clearly seems to be the case with Building 7. Um, you know, and, and the idea was that planes hit the two towers, uh, the twin towers, and that, um, you know, According to the Newtonian physics, the tops should have slid off to the side. They should have followed the path of least resistance. Instead, they collapse into their own footprint, which kind of defies, you know, Newtonian, you know, gravitational theory. Um, so the, the 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 hypothesis then is that these buildings were pulled in a controlled demolition. Um, so if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, then it begs the next question: Well, if they're going to be pulled in a controlled demolition, how these buildings had to get wired? Um, for, you know, these buildings had to be, you know, wired with thermite cutting charges to cut the load bearing members and uh, support columns uh, to bring these buildings come crashing down. Um, so how does, how was this done? I mean, let's just continue to hypothesize here. Well, of course, if, if this is going to be, if we're going to go down this rabbit hole, like I said, then obviously someone had to plant these explosives and, 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 you know, to carry this out. Um, when I was looking into this, believe it or not, um, and I was stunned when I found this out, um, was that there was a renovation project to the building's elevators. Um, this was the twin towers that was started in January of 2001 and lasted all the way up through August of 2001. Um, um, and you would think to yourself that if, if you're going to hire someone to repair elevators or do elevator renovation or you know, escalator renovation or whatever, the whole buildings, you would you would call Otis Elevator. I mean, they're the world's biggest one. They're the, you know, everyone knows you can't get on an escalator elevator with seeing Otis on it. Um, but it was, this wasn't the case. The company it was called, it was called the Ace Elevator Company, which has subsequently vanished. Um, they don't exist. Um, and when I saw that name, the first thing that just popped into my head was, oh, I thought, well, if this was an inside job, whoever put this thing together obviously must have been a fan of the movie Spies Like Us. Because if you ever saw that movie, the, the name of the company that, cover, that carries out the government wet works and black operations was called the Ace Tomato Company. Very similar. <laughs> and um, and, and uh, what, what makes it even stranger was the I think the acts to access Ace Tomato Company, you had to go down a giant elevator, if I remember correctly. Um, but but I always thought that was strange. I thought, well, that's that's interesting. I guess whoever whoever um, if, if if we're presuming and again, I use the word presume um, that this was an inside job. Um, Clearly, they must have taken inspiration or, or been inspired or copied um, the name of this company, Ace Elevator Company, um, and used it um, from Spies Like Us, this 1985 film, um, right. to, to generate the Ace Tomato or the Ace Elevator Company. Um, the parallels are too striking. So just their own little inside joke, I guess. I guess so. All right. So let's talk about. 9-11 um, imaging in films, sure. uh, Vanilla Sky, uh, The Matrix, Fight Club. Um, well, let's start with Vanilla Sky. 
Right. So, I mean, you have, you're absolutely correct. You have this whole slate of Gnostic films. I mean, it goes, you know, back even further. Um, but you have, I mean, we'll just stick with the ones you're talking about. Um, you had the slate of Gnostic films that came out right around 9-11 or before it. Vanilla Sky was filmed before 9-11, um, where the end of the movie is just very eerie to to um, the, the whole 9-11 incident, where, um, the again, the film was um, made before 9-11. The movie was released in December of 01. And if you've seen Vanilla Sky, you'll know at the very end, I guess I'm spoiling the movie here a little bit where the Tom Cruise character goes up on this incredibly high skyscraper, actually overlooking the twin towers. You can see them in the background. Um, and, um, for various, I won't get into the whole movie it would be too long and dragged out, but he has to jump off the building to awaken the consciousness. And you see him leap off and plummet down this building. And of course, when you're watching this, um, you, you think immediately of, of the people having to leap off, um, the, it's very poignant. It's very sad leaping off the world trade centers, plunging to their deaths as it were. Um, and, uh, when that movie came out, I believe, um, Cameron Crowe was the director. There was a, um, considerable effort put on upon him to remove that scene or to change it around because it, because of nine 11, which had just happened, but he refused. He, he left it in and I'm, I'm glad he did, um, because it's very poignant and it does resonate. Um, so, you know, you have vanilla sky, which is one, um, you have the matrix of course, which is, you know, Neo's passport expires on September 11th, 2001. You have the exact date, um, and you have the entire theme of awakening to consciousness. You know, again, maybe this whole thing with the platonic year changeover from Pisces to Aquarius, just one hypothetical fight club. You have the demolition of the two buildings at the end. Um, I believe fight club came out in 98, maybe it was 99. I can't recall. And then you also have um, the scene in it where the space monkeys destroy the piece of corporate art, which is very reminiscent to the sphere, which used to sit in the plaza of the World Trade Center. So that was interesting. Um, and then you have um, the one that the, the, the one kind of thing that I always found it was like a ley line almost only it works through time, not on the earth was it, you have this sequencing where um, you you have it was like um and i'd have to go look it's in the books where 9-11 of course happened on september 11th and fight club i think was 1999 which two years before and fight club i think was released on like september 21st right around um 9-11 and then you go back a few years later where you have the one simpson episode where home where homer goes to new york city and of course bart waves the money in front of the program with 9-11 on it um the name of the episode i believe is called homer simpson versus new york city um that was released that aired on like september 10th uh, 1996 so you have this kind of like sequential timeline pointing right towards 9-11 it's weird um oh it's beyond weird i mean yeah yeah. Uh, I mean, and then you have I mean, you could, you could go back in time even with this where you have movies like Escape from New York, um, where the plane crashes into uh, Air Force One crashes into lower Manhattan. Uh, you have the Donnie Darko movie, which was released um, a month after 9-11, again, filmed before 9-11, which involved a plane crash. And again, if because uh, I'm spoiling it a little here where the jet engine comes crashing down through Donnie's bedroom through an American flag. Um, and actually Richard Kelly, who directed the movie actually said, um, actually did an interview and he blamed that scene on the movie being a bit of a commercial failure. He thought people stayed away from it because it was too reminiscent to nine 11. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, 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 you know, Hollywood, in these movies, you do have, um, this, this, 
you know, prophesizing, as it were, uh, of 9-11. Um, and it, it's there, you know, Richard. I mean, it's clearly there. I it's on account. rap albums. It's on. Um, yeah. Uh, it's in the Simpson episode. It's in um, as a, you know, so what what is behind this? Let's let's assume that, uh, you know, the the producers, uh, the writers on The Simpsons don't have a pipeline into, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda or the deep state or whoever is responsible for that heinous uh, crime. What else could explain predictive programming? Because there, you know, we can talk about some other examples besides 9-11, like the the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight, the Batman movie where. Uh, we see on a map Sandy Hook, of course, where the, that horrible school shooting was, that massacre. What's happening here? Yeah, there's there's better ones than that. There's the Kobe Bryant one from uh, The Legends of Chamberlain Heights, where Kobe Bryant dies in an ele- a, a helicopter accident. And then there was um, the better one, even the best one, I guess, is um, the Three Mile Island, which was the China Syndrome, which was about a nuclear reactor melting down. I think it came out a week beforehand. Um so, right. So how is this accounted for? Um, one way, and again, this is me hypothesizing here, is that you you look at what Carl Jung said with regarding the collective unconscious and the archetypes. Um, and could this be when you're dealing with the application and the making of cinema and it being a creative effort using archetypes? Could your if if the collective unconscious is inherited, which is what Young said, and it's collective, so we all share it, um, is this somehow when it's being applied to art, can it somehow be a predictive mechanism? Um, and when you're when you're talking this, there was a Christian mystic who talked about this. Um, his name was Emanuel Schwettenborg, um, and he is a rumored Jacobite Freemason. He's a very interesting character, and he didn't have he was in the um he didn't have the advent of um the use of modern psychology but they they talk about things like images coming from the world's soul and meditation on these images coming from the world's soul um the unis monday um this is what guys like geo Dano bruno also talked about and what they what what um Schwettenberg said was if you meditate on these things and you concentrate on them, you can become prophetic. Um, Schwettenberg actually predicted the date of his own death um, accurately. Um, and, you know, you look at it and you think to yourself, well, if, if, the, if movies are applying the archetypes, is this um, some sort of predictive is, – is the movie becoming um, a predictive um, piece of art, as it were? Um, because it's incorporating the archetype, it's incorporating these images coming from the world soul, what people like Bruno and Schwettenberg were talking about. Um, what's interesting is, if you if you break this down even further, you say to yourself, well, where, where can I find archetypal imagery? Um, where, where, where's one of the best examples where I could find archetypal imagery? And the answer is the tarot. Um, the tarot cards, you know, this is where you find your archetypes, the destroyer, the tower, the sun, the moon. Uh, the lovers, uh, the fool. Um, this is, you know, your 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 kind of index of the archetypes. Uh, you know, well, what are tarot cards used for? Well, they can be, you know, used for prophecy, for predicting the future, to see into one's future, as it were. So this this ties into, you know, this whole use of the archetypes, and this is what again people like Bruno and especially Schwettenborg talked about was if you 
meditate on these things um, and you tune into them, you can actually use them somehow, some way to prophesize the future. This could be one explanation as to how these movies somehow seem to be predicting the future. It's one explanation. I'm not saying it's the only one. Um, I'm a lawyer, so I have to present as many as I possibly can. You could certainly craft the argument that Hollywood producers are working with the deep state and the deep state is crafting all these global catastrophes and they're giving it to Hollywood. That's one possibility. Maybe Hollywood, you know, elites, filmmakers are conjuring demons or have crystal bars them, balls, balls themselves. Possible. But certainly what I just said is one possible way um, of trying to explain this. All right. Uh, let's talk about Donald Trump. Because oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a fascinating one, too. <laughs> well, yeah, well, let's 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 um, start with the uh, the more recent one, which is when he made what was called this inappropriate phone call to the uh, president of Ukraine. And it sounded like or the, the, the case was being made that it was this uh, quid pro quo call, which it wasn't. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, but that that and that, that ultimately led to his um, his impeachment. So uh, we see this actually kind of play out in a strange way in the movie Joker. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's all kind of crazy stuff going on with Donald Trump. Um, you have the Joker movie, which was right before the Ukrainian impeachment, where you, if you, if you watch Joker, you have the Thomas Wayne character, which is clearly, unmistakably, a uh, Donald Trump analog. I mean, no question about that. I mean, he's running for mayor. He's the savior of Gotham. I mean, it's you know, the, I mean, the whole campaign campaign slogan for Thomas Wayne is essentially "Make Gotham Great Again." Um, and you know, right there in that movie, there's a scene where Fleck, this is Joaquin Phoenix, is looking at the newspaper where the papers are beginning to um, pick up on the the exploits of the Joker character. You know, where he shoots the guys down in the subway. Um, and believe it or not, there's actually a little tagline on the. Um, newspaper that says trouble with the ukraine and i always thought that was fascinating you have to actually pause it it's in the movie um it's hard to see but if you look at the newspaper it says problems with the ukraine or problems in ukraine and i thought oh god isn't that strange i mean here you have this um thomas wayne uh donald trump figure right in there and you have a clear reference to ukraine in the movie um and I just found that it's so interesting. I just found that, you know, and it's right beforehand. That's what makes it so astounding. I mean, I think Joker off, off the top of my head came out in October of 2019. This was like a month or so right before the impeachment thing. Um, and I just found that so fascinating. Um, you know, they were just so close to it. Oh, it's it's mind boggling. It's absolutely yeah. mind boggling. Yeah. What about, the, what mean, about the, the Lego, the Lego movie with Donald Trump? Well, that's another one um, that came out, I believe, in 13 or 14. Um, maybe it was 12. I'd have to go back and look. Um, and you clearly have, again, the president business character who becomes president. Um, he starts off as a businessman um, and he becomes president business is, again, another Donald Trump analog um, stand in personification, call it what you will, where the president business character wants to just build walls around the different Lego universes, sequester them <laughs> off with walls. And he refers to his detractors as snowflakes. Um, you know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And then you have right around that same time, um, the Serta mattress ad where Donald Trump hires the Serta mattress sheep 
the sleep sheep um, to guard the rooms to his hotels. And, and the numbers on the sheep are 11 and 9, which was November 9th, which was the date that he became president. Again, you know, you just can't can't make this stuff up. Um, and it's just astounding when you look at it. Well, even if we go back um, 130 years to the late 19th century, you had sure. Ingersoll Lockwood, this American uh, author and lawyer, uh, maybe some similarities between you and Ingersoll Lockwood there, Robert, but he, he was writing these Baron Trump novels, right? The, it was the, uh, uh, the travels and adventures of little Baron Trump and his wonderful dog, uh, Bolger, and Baron Trump's marvelous underground journey, like... And he goes to Russia to meet Don. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the little Baron Trump starts his adventure by going to Russia to meet Don. Um, fascinating. Um, and what's even more stranger about the whole thing is, and this is in the book, is if you look at the illustration of little Baron Trump, uh, it looks just like the real one. Uh, you know, it looks like the real Baron Trump at that same age. Uh, that's what that's what's really peculiar about it. Uh, you know, there's an illustration of what little Baron Trump looks like. And if you look at him and you pull up a picture and it's in the book of right. what little what Baron Trump looked like at that age, they look identical. And didn't Don, the character Don, uh, didn't he use didn't he have nicknames for people he didn't like, like the real Donald Trump, you know, sleepy Joe Biden and and lying Ted Cruz and. And um, whatever he called Hillary, uh, yeah. he had, the character in in the book also had nicknames for his enemies. And then then he wrote Ingersoll Rand also wrote a book, um, I, 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 like a, one another one where a presidential candidate out of nowhere came out of New York and was causing riots in the streets. It's too strange. Absolutely. All right. Um, we're going to uh, open up the phone lines right now and take questions and comments. And also, if you're in the YouTube live chat, uh, we'll uh, we'll take your questions as well. And Ryan will, uh, my live stream producer, will feed those to me. So, four one six three six zero zero seven forty in the Greater Toronto area. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. And toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740, 866-740-4740. That's the GTA. And again, the Greater Toronto Area, 416-360-0740. Back with more of my conversation with Robert W. Sullivan IV when The Conspiracy Show continues. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Robert W. Sullivan IV, and uh, Cinema Symbolism 3 is his latest. How do we get a copy, Robert? Sure. Um, it's on all the major online retailers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Uh, it's on the Canadian uh, Amazon site. 
you can go to my website if you'd like. Uh, there's links there, uh, robertwsullivaniv.com, or you can just go to Amazon and type the title in. I'm sure it'll come up, and it's all my books are, of course, in the print and ebook edition, the Kindle, you know, the Nook. Um, so you can get whatever you want. And like I said, they're all on all the major online retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble books, a million. And that goes for all the international Amazon sites as well. So you can get into Canada, no problem. All right. So what is occult casting all about? Right, right. This is something that is just, uh, a, a really interesting study in my opinion. And this is where, um, that's a term that I used. I came up with it myself because I could think of nothing else to call it. Although I think now you could possibly put it under the purview of art of memory, which I can get into. But caught casting is where a filmmaker hires or retains and places in their film a, um, a an actor or an actress for the sole purpose of transferring that actor's or actress's past performance or the themes of that movie into their new movie, um, into the, into the new project. So for example, um, a great example of this would be, um, like Max von Sydow in the star Wars, the force awakened movie where he just appears at the very beginning of it. Um, they could have put anybody there. I mean, they could have put any elderly Hollywood actor there, but they choose Von Cito. And they did that on purpose because his presence is designed to conjure two movies that he was in earlier. Uh, the first is The Exorcist, um, where, of course, he appears at the de in the desert at the very beginning also, and he confronts uh, the demon, the statue of the demon Pazuzu. And he does the same thing in Star Wars, where he's in the desert and he confronts uh, Kylo Ren, the black-suited Kylo Ren. So what that what that is doing to your subconscious is is it is transferring this imagery of the Exorcist subconsciously into your mind, and it's investing the First Order and Kylo with sort of the demonism, the diabolic nature of uh, the Exorcist of Pazuzu. Um, and then the second movie, it's the same sort of thing, where it's Dune, where again, Von Cito appears on the desert planet and deals with the Harkonnens, which are also savage. Um, these, you know, the vile monster, Baron Harkonnen. And Harkonnen. So, again, by putting Von Cito in that movie, um, in the Star Wars movie, what that is doing is subconsciously conjuring, drawing forth his two earlier performances in The Exorcist and uh, Dune, and it's transferring sort of the raw savagery and the evilness um, of uh, The Exorcist and Dune, the Harkonnens and Pazuzu, and putting them in the First Order. That's the way this stuff works. Um, Von Cito is an example of it. I'd have to think of some others, um, but there are others. I just can't think of them off the, well, off the top of my head. Do you, do you think that when the uh, the casting agent uh, calls Max von Cito. The, well, he's no longer with us, but would he be telling him the only reason you're being cast in this no. movie is no, he's not no. aware of it. No, I think he just I think he just says, hey, you know, let's let's hire. There are other examples of this. Um, maybe maybe the actor is aware of it. It's possible. Um, uh, there are other examples of this. Like I said, I'm just drawing a blank right now off the top of my head. They're in the book. Um, but I, ha I have documented other examples of this. Uh, Patrick where Swayze? How about Patrick Swayze oh, yeah, yeah, in that, Do that, Donnie Darko? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, Donnie Darko and Catherine Ross in, in, in Donnie Darko. Um, that is clearly designed. Um, you have the whole idea of Donnie Darko being about disillusioned youth. Um, and 
the casting of Swayze. Well, the casting of Swayze is twofold. One is that movie, Donnie Darko, takes place in 1988 and is filled with 80s cheese. So the casting of Swayze is twofold. One, it's designed to resurrect his 80s movies that he made, like Roadhouse. But specifically, it's designed to resurrect Dirty Dancing, which is, again, a movie that has an undercurrent about disenfranchised youth, excuse me, you know, um, youth being upset with the status quo, um, you know, the 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 underlings, uh, the, the staff at the hotel being kind of suppressed by the adults in the hotel. It's a transitional movie from the 50s to the 60s. And Swayze's appearance is to, is to do the same thing, because if you watch Donnie Darko, it's the same thing. It's about disillusioned youth, and um, that's what uh, Dirty Dances, Dirty Dancing is about disillusioned youth. Catherine Ross, same type type of scenario. Um, her presence as a psychiatrist is designed to conjure um, uh, the Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, where she played its girlfriend. Same theme, a movie about disillusioned youth, the nineteen sixties. Um, so those two actors in um, Donnie Darko are designed to conjure their early performances and 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 uh, transfer this whole sentiment of disillusioned youth un- unhappiness with the status quo and transfer it into Donnie Darko, which is again, um, Donnie Darko, the character is, um, struggling with adults and, um, you know, is again, one of these disillusioned youth type characters, a, uh, a Holden Caulfield as it were. Right. All right. Let's go to the YouTube live chat. And Mike L asks, Robert, do you have any examples of this occult, or esoteric symbology in in the video game industry. You know, um, I'd have to. It's it's not off the top of my head. I'd have to go and look at it. I know for a fact that um, I know the Assassin Creed movie or movie, the Assassin Creed video game, was using some um, some some stuff from the world of conspiracy. With I I, I had them. I had I, I have a PS3 here, and I, I used to um, I don't really play too much anymore, but I did the assassin. And they, they they had the whole thing with like the Knights Templar and conspiracy stuff like that, and they they had some 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 hidden imagery I think in some of the video games. It's probably there. I've never really paid much attention to it, but if you told me video games were using occult themes and symbols, wouldn't it surprise me? All right. Uh, Solar Warden asks, Robert, have you seen the Lone Gunman episode about 9-11 and its glaring, literal, same plan scenario with planes in the towers airing on TV in March of 2001? And your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, that's another one. Um, the Lone Gunman is another one um, of a, another one of these uh, predictive 9-11 movie or uh, TV shows. That was a television show, of course. We're right where the 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 the, uh, um, high, uh, the airliner actually gets hijacked by the government and gets flown was being flown into the World Trade Center. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with that episode. And that's another great example um, of, of all this, you know, not pre pre 9-11 imagery and media. Uh, Kim dot net asks. Robert, can you discuss the possibility of retro causality and the idea of the future possibly affecting the past? Basically, reverse prophecy. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not too familiar with that one. Uh, that's beyond my skill set, as it were. <laughs> All right. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Stanley Kubrick because, I mean, he- I think you would agree uh, he, he's like the master of creating all of these multiple levels of, of uh, you know, and layers in his films. And people have suggested that The Shining was his way of uh, the subtext in the film is basically his admission 
that he was the one that shot the uh, the lunar landing, the Apollo 11 lunar landing on a soundstage. It was a hoax. And this is him uh, with these little hidden esoteric symbols in The Shining revealing that, in fact, this was, you know, his admission, the lunar landing. He filmed it. It was a hoax. Have you heard that? Yes, The Shining. The Shining is an is an expert is a is a great movie and is overloaded with all sorts of uh, imagery. What Kubrick does in that movie is he repeats numbers and themes all over the place. That that movie is nothing but repeating doubles, and he is doing that to convey the sense of reincarnation. That the Overlook is just a never ending Ouroboros biting its tail. Um, the thing with NASA is interesting because um, there is some truth to this. It wasn't necessarily that it was a hoax. You could craft the argument that they actually went to the moon, but they couldn't film there. Um, and uh, that Kubrick just filmed the guys hopping around in like a soundstage. I believe it. I believe it or not, this is actually seen in a James Bond movie. I believe it's Diamonds Are Forever, where Bond actually winds up in a uh, Area 51-like base out in Nevada, and he goes down into like a basement or something and there's a stanley kubrick analog down there filming the guys hopping around on the moon um but of course in the shining it's the scene we all know about where little danny is playing with uh, the toys stands up wearing the apollo 11 sweater of course this is the rocket launch then goes to room 237 the symbolism being that back in the late 80s the moon was 237,000 miles from the earth so this was kubrick's way of saying you know you know with danny you know symbolically wearing the apollo 11 sweater going to the moon and uh you know going into room 237 and that this was kubrick's way of saying to the world i film the guys hopping around on the moon this isn't as far-fetched as it sounds and for a couple reasons one is um there's rumors out there that um, the government was very impressed with Kubrick's filming of 2001 and Strange Love, and the way he filmed those, and that when they saw those movies, just thought, "Hey, this is the guy. I mean, this is the guy we got to use to film uh, the fake, you know, the fake moon landing. These guys hopping around on a sound studio." Now, again, you could make the argument they actually went to the moon, um, but they just couldn't film there, and Kubrick filmed um, the footage. The smoking gun in all this um, is the movie that no one talks about um, with Kubrick um, and it's Barry Lyndon. Um, this was the movie he made before The Shining, um, and no one no, no one seems to be aware of this. I talk about it in the book. This is your smoking gun um, because um, Kubrick used NASA technology to film the movie. Um, Kubrick went to his old buddies at NASA um, and got special lenses to film Barry Lyndon. Um, and the reason why is because Barry Lyndon is a movie about the Napoleonic uh, Wars, takes place in the Napoleonic era. And Kubrick wanted to film the movie and wanted to film scenes in the movie using exclusively candle lighting. Um, well, you know this can't be done if you're familiar with cinema. You could have characters sitting in a dark room with a candle going, but of course you have to have an exterior light shining on them. It'll be too dark. It will never show up. There's no way to film the camera. Um character sitting in a room illuminated by candles only it's too dark it's too glaring won't work nasa developed a lens that allowed you to do this i forget the name of it um but it, it was it was a high it was a high um focal lens and when kubrick requested a couple of these from nasa and of course being pals with them they gave them to him and he used his um cinematographer went to work on these lenses lenses and he actually crafted them so when you're watching barry linden a Kubrick movie, um, he filmed that using NASA technology. 
Um, and of course, why, why did he have such access to NASA? And of course, the answer is obvious. He filmed the moon landing for them. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Good stuff, Robert. Stay put. We'll uh, take another time out. Come back. Get to some more calls. 416-360-0740 in the GTA. Toll free from just about anywhere. 866-744-740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, uh, Robert, what is mesmerism and uh, how did Edgar Allan Poe use it? Yeah, mesmerism is a, a early form of hypnotism. This fascinated Edgar Allan Poe. He uses it in several of his short stories. Um, and what what's interesting with Poe is um, he kind of dumps on the occult a little bit, although you find esoteric themes in some of his works. You find mesmerism. The cast of Amontillado is the anti-Masonic movement. Um, the character of Fortunato or Fortuna or whatever his name is, is um, – is, uh, What's his name? The guy I just said, William Morgan, who gets bricked up by the Mason's bricks in the wall, disappears forever. Um, so the Castle of Matalado is a tale about is, is a reflection of the anti-Masonic movement of the 1820s. Um, the guy, the guy who was interacting with Poe, um, and this gets left out, was a guy by the name of um, Ethan Allen Hitchcock at West Point. He was a teacher at West Point, um, and Poe was at West Point and actually was a student of his. Um, Ethan Allen uh, Hitchcock is the grandson, of course, of the Freemason Ethan Allen the Revolutionary War hero. Um, and Ethan Allen Hitchcock was a Rosicrucian. Um, he identified as himself as a Rosicrucian. And um, during the American Civil War, he was the chief advisor to Abraham Lincoln. Um, so you had a Rosicrucian in the White House um, inv- advising Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And uh, yeah, Poe, um, you'll find occult themes in Poe. Like I said, the Castle of Malatolato is um, anti-Masonry with the Fortunato character being William Morgan being bricked up you know, by the Mason's trowel at the end who disappears forever. Mesmerism fascinated Poe. You'll find it in a couple of his stories. The names are escaping me right now. Um, it's, you know, blatant. It's, you know, I'm, It'll be on my bedtime right now, so <laughs> no uh, please for, please forgive me if I can't recall the names of certain things. But no, Poe's an interesting character, and again, the reason I bring that up and I brought it up earlier is I want people to understand that Hollywood's use of occult themes, symbols, esoteric undercurrents is nothing new. Um, you will find this in the works of the 19th century writers in America. You'll find this in the works of Richard Wagner, Mozart, William Shakespeare, you know, or Sir Francis Bacon, if you will. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's this is nothing new to Hollywood. Uh, you've got uh, a, a note here that I, I, I wanted to I forgot to ask you about earlier because you mentioned yeah. Thomas Aquinas and um, Albertus Magnus. You say they meddled with A.I. as in artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's that's right. The the, the whole idea of of artificial intelligence um and and the animation of hu- you know of human beings creation of human beings it comes from um, this is millennia old this comes from Kabbalah number one with the idea of golem making uh, this is where you use divine names and divine um, sigils and Hebrew letters to create life um, this is of course Frankenstein's monster Smurfette Frosty the Snowman. Um, this all comes out of the world of Jewish, out of the world of Jewish mysticism, and then of course the Hermetica um, in the in the Latinus Clepius, 
um, you have the whole idea of what are called hermetic statues. Um, and th- this, you know, this, they talk about um, that man can make statues and animate them, um, you know, and bring these statues to life. And, you know, they can do whatever they want them to do. And again, this parallels, you know, runs parallel with the Kabbalistic golem, Frankenstein's monster, Frosty the Snowman, Smurfette, what have you. Um, and there were these two Christian saints. I mean, this is, you know, you know, part of history, allegedly, anyway. Um, a Saint Albertus Magnus apparently used a magic to animate a talking head of brass um, that was, you know, considered a, a hermetic statue. This talking head of brass was animated through some sort of magic of some kind. Um, and uh, the story goes that um, Thomas Aquinas, of course, the saint, um, smashed it, destroyed the statue because it kept interrupting his studies and he got sick and tired of it and smashed this talking head of brass, this AI, this robot, as it were, because it kept bothering him. Um, so, again, the whole idea of AI um, is nothing new to Hollywood. This goes back um, two millennia, at least. Fascinating. All right. I want to work in some more questions here from the YouTube live chat. Show me the truth. 74 asks, there are tales of sacrifices for power in Hollywood. Uh, Robert, do you have any personal knowledge of a ritual sacrifice? Uh, no, I do not have any personal knowledge of a sacrifice. Um, I've never attended a human sacrifice, and I have <laughs> no personal knowledge of a sacrifice. All right. I thought you might answer that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, Stephen Kreshevsky asks, do you have any thoughts on think tanks and lobbyist groups consulting with Hollywood to push certain agendas and al- almost as many that work with the federal government? It's certainly possible. I have no personal knowledge of it, but what that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I mean, I know, for example, um, the one Transformer movie used the movie. I can't remember. There's been so damn many of these things. The one Transformer movie where they're fighting on the pyramid at the end. Um, I think it's the sequel, the sequel Rise of the Fallen, maybe. And the Navy uses the rail gun uh, to blast one of the Transformers. And um, this is true. The Navy had developed the rail gun and actually wanted the Transformer movie to relay it to the world. Because after the movie that came out, the United States Navy said, yeah, that's real. We have a rail gun and we use this movie to announce it to the world. So, yeah. The, and like I said, the, the FBI reviewed um, the X-Files scripts for accuracy. And again, to repeat, Yankee Doodle Dandy, war propaganda, Pentagon, you know, or the War Department. Um, and same thing with the first couple Universal Sherlock Holmes movies with Rathbone and Carl, uh, Rathbone and Karloff, Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. All right, we'll take one final timeout. Come back, get to some more questions from the YouTube live chat. More of my conversation with Robert W. Sullivan IV, Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood, unveiled right here on the Conspiracy Show. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And a few minutes remain with Robert W. Sullivan IV. How do we get a copy of Cinema Symbolism 3? Sure. Uh, you can go to Amazon. All the online online uh, sites have it. Uh, the you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the ones that sell books, of course. Uh, 
Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Um, you can go to my website. There's links there to buy it. My website is my name. My name is Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com for the fourth. Um, you, there are links there to purchase it. Again, if you just go to Amazon and type the name in, it'll be there. It'll be on the Amazon Canada site, um, England, Germany, France, United States. Um, all my books are there. I have an author uh, central page. So if you go to my Google, just type in my name, that'll come up. Um, and again, all my books, Cinema Symbolism, One, Two, Three, Royal Arch and Pact, um, they're all in print and ebook form. So whatever you want to get, you know, it's up to you. But they're all, all available, all print, all ebook. Talk yourself out. All right. Let's go to the phone lines. John is checking in from Toronto. Good morning, John. Hi, you things. Hope I uh, hope I can finish my spiel before I uh, get hit and run off the road here. Uh, here I'm in to say sorry. Um, but why don't you say no disrespect, uh, guest of the guest of the year there, Mister the Sullivan. Sullivan the third. Yeah, um, talk is cheap, mommy to say, and I'd appreciate having some proof and evidence uh, with respect to all these movie clips that you speak of. For instance, if you have a website, you can provide it to us right now so we can check out. Because that may have put together, which coincide with your um, allegations, which I don't really doubt at all. But I'm just saying. Well, there's that. no allegations here. He's simply talking about a well, you know, a, a well-known um, uh, practice by by directors and, and and writers to insert symbolism into film. I mean, they're, they're, that's not an allegation. That's just. I mean, you, you you can watch you can watch The Shining. If you read my book, you can watch The Shining and count the repetition. I mean, I've done it myself. Um, you know, the, the, you know, you read the book, watch the movie, you'll see it all. All right. Uh, let's say hi to, or no, Jennifer's on the, in the YouTube live chat. Uh, she wants to know about the stories about Nicole Kidman's father. Uh, this is kind of, you know, drifting off into an area. I don't know that you're. No, I, I saw that. I saw that on the chat. Right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do. I analyze in cinema symbolism too. I analyze eyes wide shut and I do analyze in Royal Arch the ninth gate with Johnny Depp. That's as close as I can get to the number nine and to Nicole Kidman. Right. Her father was uh, allegedly involved in this child sacrifice cult, which, you know, I don't know anything about that really, other than that that's, that was the rumor that was out there. Uh, Picasso wants uh, you to touch on the movie Tenet and is it the Sator, Sator Square or Sator Square? Yeah, I've never seen the movie. Um, I've not seen the movie Tenet, and I do not comment on movies that I have not seen. All right. Um, let's see. Now, someone had an interesting question in the YouTube live chat as well. Uh, it's not posted up on the uh, the Skype chat here, but it had to do with Admiralty Law. And uh, let's see, which movie was it? It was one of the Star Trek movies, I think. Oh, here it is. Uh, Sigma Six. Sigma Six asks, do you see a legal analogy in the movie The Matrix, i.e. Admiralty Law? Remember in the movie, every time they wanted to exit The Matrix, they had to use a landline. I'm not sure what that, what the connection is between Admiralty Law. Anyway, uh, any thoughts on that, Robert? No, not really. I, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, no, I don't have anything on that one. All right. That's kind of, a, that's an obscure uh, reference. Admiralty Law and uh, The Matrix. All right. Um, fairy tales as solar allegories. What does that mean? Well, right. Again, this is, this is, again, we're dealing with the archetypes. And again, what's the most powerful ones? Well, they all come from the heavens, the sun, the moon. Um, and again, you know, you look at, you know, 
this is something I took on in Cinema Symbolism 2 um, initially, and then I finished up in Cinema Symbolism 3 with Beauty and the Beast. Um, but again, these fairy tales, they're all the same thing, whether it be, the you know, it's, it's a solar allegory. Um, you know, you get into, you know, the little, the heroine is the dawn, the sun in the morning, you know, you know, she, 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 she falls into the winter months and then unify, you know, is awakened at the vernal equinox by the blonde haired, blue eyed prince. You look at little red riding hood, little red riding hood is the sun cloaked in the wind, in the red cloak, the leaves of autumn falls into winter, gets swallowed by the wolf liberated at the vernal equinox. Um, you know, by the huntsman, the blonde haired, blue eyed prince, um, Snow White, same story, you know, Cinderella, you know, trapped by the three winter months, the stepsisters liberated at the vernal equinox by the prince charming. It's the same thing. It's the same thing over and over. Beauty and the Beast, you know, the, 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 the woman is trapped in the wintry castle um, only to be liberated by the beast himself when he turns into the handsome prince at the vernal equinox, the sun resurrected, the sun born again. Same thing, same motif over and over again. Um, and what's funny is if you watch the one movie that I took on in Cinema Symbolism 3, which was the which was Beauty and the Beast, this was the Disney live action one with um, Emma Watson. Um, in, in the Beauty and the Beast song, which is the same song from the 1991 version, they actually added the lyric. Um, they actually knew this. They actually figured this out finally. And they actually added the lyric, something to the effect of like spring, winter turns to spring, something like that. Um, and it's the same thing. It's just the emergence of the sun from the winter months into the spring months. Um, and you'll find this again pervading uh, fairy tales. Uh, this talk about in both the books um, and something that's, you know, again, you're dealing with archetypal imagery, sun, the moon, um, winter, summer months, things like that. Right. All right. So, uh, we've been talking about different types of symbology, uh, um, Gnostic symbology, Enochian symbology, Hermeticism, uh, alchemical. But there's also, from time to time, we'll see Christian symbology. And the example that you give in the book is actually like something I didn't expect at all. And it, ha it has to do with all those Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for a oh, few dollars more. There's Christian sure. symbology there. Sure. Um, well, Sergio Leone was a Roman Catholic, so um, it only serves that there would be Christian imagery in his films. Uh, Mark Sazy does it again, uses uh, bars heavily from Leone for Gangs of New York, um, uses the same sort of theme, same sort of imagery. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, you have the um, Blondie character. This is the Clint Eastwood character, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Christ archetype. You have him in the one um uh, what is it fistful of dollars um where he you know gets killed you know gets resurrected um goes into the subterranean tomb gets resurrected and emerges only to defeat you know the devil the rojas family um same sort of theme carried forward in the good the band the ugly where you have blondie is the christ figure um battling the devil which is uh the bad this is levon cleef and of course they're competing for the soul of humankind which is the ugly which is uh um eli wallach and the reason that he is called the ugly is this is humankind in the state after the fall of eden so the whole movie is a religious allegory it's god versus the devil um competing for the souls of humanity um which is represented by the ugly um and again this same theme 
Um, Martin Scorsese uses this exact same imagery, these exact same themes in his Gangs of New York movie, where the Daniel Day-Lewis character is obviously the devil. Um, the new Amster, the Amsterdam character is obviously the Christ figure battling for the soul of New York, as it were. Um, it's uh, very interesting. And, uh, yeah, the Christ figure turns up from time to time. I mean, J.C., the initials, John Coffey from the Green Mile, who resurrects the dead mouse and heals the sick and dies for the sins of the South. John Carpenter, J.C., Christ was a carpenter uh, from uh, the day the earth still comes down from the heavens to warn mankind about their error of their ways. Um James Cole, J.C., Jesus Christ, comes back in time to save humankind um, from a uh, deadly virus. Of course, no one believes him. Um, good, yeah. So, yeah, Jesus Christ turns up from time to time in cinema. No question about it. Is there a, um, a, a movie that you find is just almost uh, inexhaustible in, in, in the number of layers, in the number of uh, – symbols and so forth the one that i keep coming back to is and the one that i literally richard that i watch it every time every time i watch it, i seem to pick up something new is darren aronofsky's black swan that's the one that to me is almost never ending there is so much going on in that movie um you could probably write a book about it itself in fact when I did Black Swan, I actually split it in half. I took it on in Cinema Symbolism 1. I took it on in Cinema Symbolism 2. I find myself constantly coming back to it. Um, I talk about it in Cinema Symbolism 3 because literally every time I seem to watch it, I seem to see something new in it. Um, and it's just one of those like masterpieces that, you know, just is like a never-ending study. You could probably write a book about it by itself. Maybe that's your next uh, – That maybe that is your next book, right? Yeah, well, I'm going right now, I'm going back through the other four and just making some cleanups, tweaks to it. I might throw in a little more information. I know um, when I'm doing Cinema Symbolism Part 1, I want to throw in some more information from The Wizard of Oz. Um, so that's kind of my next project right now is I want to tweak. Um, and But the reason for this was with the Royal Arch book. I want to do another book on masonry, but it doesn't work. Um, I, I couldn't get it to work, so I'm going back to Royal Arch. I'm going to add in some of the stuff I subtracted out. And I figure, well, while I'm doing that, let me make some edits to Cinema Symbols in 1 and 2 and Pack with the Devil. I want to clean up a couple things, um, some things that I, I thought didn't come out quite, quite right and uh, some things that I want to add in. So that's my next project. That's what I'm doing right now. But, yeah, there's definitely going to be probably a Cinema Symbolism 4, some more fiction. We'll see. Fantastic. Robert, always a delight. I'll speak to you on uh, Coast in July. Looking forward right. to that. That's right. I'm looking forward to it. And again, thank you so much for having me on uh, The Conspiracy Show tonight. It was my pleasure. And uh, I look forward to Coast to Coast. Fantastic. Robert W. Sullivan IV, Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult, Hollywood Unveiled. All right, back next week with another brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.